May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight. For thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we enter into the second week of Lent, we continue in our journey with our Lord Jesus. Let's look at the text in the Gospel together. And one of the first things you've probably noticed is that we skipped from Luke chapter 4 to Luke chapter 13. And you might ask yourself, why? Look at Luke chapter 13, verse 22, which is the first verse of today's Gospel. He, that is Jesus, went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. It seems a small point at first, as we look at this gospel. This just seems like a transition, right? An introductory statement. But this is very purposefully put here, friends, on the second Sunday of Lent in the lectionary, because we are journeying with Christ, and Christ is journeying towards Jerusalem. And it would seem inconsequential, except when we look at the end of the gospel passage. So flip now the page and look at verses 33 through 34. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. So the first thing to notice from the very appointment of the texts today and from what the Apostle Luke is doing is that he's intentionally bringing us as the reader, as the worshiper, to Jesus' destiny here at the beginning of this Gospel. What is Jesus' destiny? What is his destiny at this point in Lent? His exodus from this world upon the cross. It looms large. And it looms large here in the text as well. Last week as the church has for centuries, we journeyed with our Lord Jesus into the wilderness, right? As he fasted and prayed for us, and we began our own fast with him. And one of the things that we reflected upon is that dealing with our own sin and temptation is difficult. And indeed, it can be very confusing. How's your Lent devotion going? It's only week two. And yet it can be disheartening sometimes when we look at what we're entrapped by. But friends, the good news is you're not alone in facing temptation. And you're not alone in this journey. If you were, there'd be no hope. But you're not. And so this text, friends, talks about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ as well as the power of sin. Today our Gospel speaks about salvation right up front. Did you notice it? Did you hear it? It kind of smacks you right in the face. Our Lord Jesus' lesson lesson to us, rather, are two. 
And they're basically twin lessons that go together. Number one, salvation is costly. Number two, salvation is costly. Well, you're saying, but Father Sean, that's the same thing. Yes. Let's finish the statement. Number one, salvation is costly to God. Salvation is costly to God. Something I, I think we sometimes forget. But Lent, of course, reminds us. And number two, salvation is costly to you and to me. Salvation is costly. Let's look at first how it's costly to God. How costly it must have been for God to send His only Son to earth, knowing the cross lay before Him. As I preach, I've had the crucifix behind me for Lent. That's to remind me, as well as you, of the costliness of our salvation. The costliness of Jesus being nailed upon the cross for us, out of love. Our Lord Jesus, of course, knows this ultimate cost that He's going to pay. It's been the plan from the beginning, right? In our Genesis passage, we see this. We see that thousands of years before Jesus becomes incarnate, God is at work in Genesis chapter 15. And those of you that were with me for the Abraham Genesis sermon series last year probably remember this, so I won't get too much into the details, but for those that were not here, remember in Genesis chapter 15, we have this strange ritual going on. Billy read it well for us today, but it's kind of odd, the 21st century eyes and ears. Not kind of odd, it's really odd, right? There's these animals split apart in this covenant ritual. And then there's this smoking fire pot and fire that goes through. And if you were scratching your head and saying, what is going on here? Trust me, you're not alone. But in the eyes of God's people of the Old Testament, this is very symbolic and richly laden. It's a covenant ritual in Genesis 15 between God and Abraham. God being God, and Abraham representing God's chosen people. And what's going on here is something that would have been as common in their day as the Senate ratifying a treaty in our day, right? Foreign policy is very much in the news right now, right? And so some of you might have, might have been reading up on, on how treaties are made and kept. Right? We're hearing all about NATO right now, one of those treaties that goes back to World War II. This is a treaty, and this is something very common for God's people to know. In Genesis 15, there's this image. And usually in the ancient world, the image was this. You had two countries represented by their kings. And one was a strong, dominant country, and the other was the weaker, vassal country, right? And what would happen is that the countries would come together, usually the weaker country would come to the stronger king and say, we don't stand a chance against you. Will you make a treaty with us, please? We won't be your enemy, so that we won't be your enemy. Right? So that we might be saved. And then the weaker vassal 
would have to make the sacrifice of splitting these animals and he would walk through the two pieces of the animals to the stronger king who was waiting upon his throne. And he would kneel down and the stronger king would come and he would put his hands over the weaker king's hands. It's an image that we still use today, by the way. And the stronger king would take the fealty, the oath, of the weaker king. And the weaker king was reminded as it came through the split animals that if I violate this treaty, this is what's going to happen to me. I'll be nothing but a split apart, destroyed person, and my people are killed and wiped out. Now, here's the twist. In Genesis 15, who goes through the split animals? Did you look at it? Did you catch it? You probably didn't. If, if, you, if, you weren't, if, if, if the image was you know, a strange one to you. But is it Abraham who's the weaker king, quote-unquote? No. It's God himself who walks between the split animals. What is that saying? What is that saying? God is saying... Even if you do not keep your covenant, I will take the punishment upon myself. Do you see? It's a reverse of the ancient world. God's costly salvation comes due and is paid in full through Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross. Our salvation given by that perfect sacrifice once made, as we say in our Eucharistic prayer, and of course, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, knows this. It's not like He's unaware. We see that in verse 33, right? Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, Jesus knows that He's more than a prophet. But Jerusalem has a legacy of killing the prophets. And Jesus is prophet in addition to priest, king, and sacrifice. That's Jesus' purpose at Jerusalem. That's his destiny. And we hear that, of course, we're reminded of it in our comfortable words every Sunday. It's said to us after our confession to give us hope, to give us promise. This is a true saying worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's for those who trespass against God's covenant, you and I, indeed all mankind, violating his law for whom Jesus came to die, for whom Jesus comes to walk the passion in Jerusalem. In today's gospel, Jesus is striving to accomplish his purpose, not without temptation, notice, what do the Pharisees say to him? The Pharisees, for a change, seem to be on his side. They seem to be on his side, don't they? What do the Pharisees say to him? Look at verse 27. I'm sorry, that's not right. <laughs> Where are the Pharisees? 31, thank you. At this very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. 
And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. You see, what the Pharisees are his temptation today. Flee, Jesus. Flee from your destiny. Now, it's not his destiny for Herod to kill him, but of course it's his destiny to die. But do you see the temptation there? And so Jesus rebukes them mightily because he knows God's plan for him, for us. And so the second Sunday of Lent, we are reminded that salvation is costly to God and is a great act of charity and love. But the second theme is this. Salvation is costly to us. Salvation is costly to us. The first part of the Gospel passage reminds us that salvation's costly to the Christian, to the one who does follow Jesus, to the one who is baptized, who is part of the kingdom of God. It's certainly less costly to us, to be sure. We're not called to die on the cross at least in the way that Jesus did. Oh yes, we're to take up our cross, we're to crucify the flesh, but that's all imagery used to talk about the costliness of what it costs us. It's not as if most of us are called to be martyrs, although some have been. And yet, it's nevertheless costly, isn't it? Some of you have experienced that cost firsthand. Most of you have experienced some cost of being a Christian. Look at verse 23. When someone said to him, that is, they said to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door and say, Lord, open to us, Then he'll answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. What does Jesus mean in the first part of this passage where he says, strive to enter through the narrow door? Well, the first thing that Jesus does is he corrects the questioner. The questioner is not asking the right question. Because the questioner asks, Lord, will they be few that are saved? And Jesus' answer is not an answer to his question. Did you notice that? The Jews of this era were always arguing about who was going to make the cut. Who was it that was holding the law enough to make the cut? Was it the Pharisees? Those guys are really holy. Was it the Sadducees? Eh, a little less holy. How about the Essenes? How about, how about those that are on the outskirts, those really devout monks, the monk equivalents of the Hebrews? Are they going to make it? Uh, certainly not the Gentiles. Certainly not those people. They won't make it. Do you see the heart that Jesus sees here is worried about this problem in the abstract. But Jesus corrects the questioner and says, don't you worry about the big picture. You worry about you. That doesn't come as strong 
It doesn't come through as strongly in the English as it is in the Greek. But the word here that Jesus is, uses is agonizomai. Agonizomai in the Greek. Does that sound like an English word? Agony. Agony. And the end says, you agonize about entering the kingdom. Agonize about being saved. This is not some theoretical thing. This is about you. This is about you. And Jesus' words ring strongly through the millennia to you and to me. Right? Agonize about the kingdom of God. Contend for it. Pour everything you've got into it. For the narrow, for narrow is the window, or narrow is the door. Understand that just because our Lord Jesus Christ paid the greater price of justifying his followers does not mean that Christians get just to ride along effortlessly to their own sanctification and glorification. There's a strange thought that I've encountered since I was a child, and it's pervasive in mainline churches and in evangelical churches. It's a really odd, unbiblical thought. There's two versions of it, actually. In many mainline churches and some Roman Catholic churches, we talk about how God loves everybody, which of course is true. But then the corollary is add, therefore he will save everyone which is manifestly false. It's true that God loves everybody. That he will save everyone is manifestly false. Look at the gospel today. Jesus doesn't say that. Everyone will be saved. He says, strive to enter the narrow door. And many mainline Christians take this to heart without any greater thought. They ignore both justification and sanctification. Well, on the other hand, you've got evangelicals that I've run into. And they talk about how God loves everyone, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God except for Jesus, which again, is true. But then they ignore the necessity to strive for holiness, which is manifestly false. Again, it doesn't square with Jesus' words here. Strive, agonize to enter the kingdom of God. You see, the mainline problem plainly contradicts the Bible, if anyone bothers to read it, and comes out of biblical ignorance, mixed with twisted, unorthodox interpretation. It's a dangerous half-gospel. I might even say false gospel. The second is much odder, Because evangelicals are usually familiar with the Bible, and yet they have this block when it comes to sanctification, the second part of salvation. The thought goes like this for the evangelical. Jesus has paid the price, and anything that I try to do regarding my salvation is works righteousness. Have you run into that before? The idea that anything that you do in your faith life is somehow taking away from Jesus' sacrifice? Is somehow you trying to work your way into God's presence? That's not biblical. Read the epistles. Perhaps you've heard that. 
Perhaps you've even believed it at certain points in your life. That, too, is dangerous because it contradicts Jesus' words here. Strive or agonize to enter the narrow door. And it's certainly not something that comes out of the Reformation. In his 95 theses, the very first theses, remember the thing that Martin Luther nails to the, to the church door at Wittenberg? It's not, is, it, is it actually at Wittenberg? Yeah, all right. At Wittenberg, just trying to make sure that you're still awake. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, says Martin Luther, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Right out of the gate. That's the first thesis. I'll read it to you again. When our Lord, Jesus, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Well, let's turn to another great reformer, John Calvin. Calvin writes this on this text. When Jesus bids them strive or labor, he conveys the information that it is impossible to obtain eternal life without great and appalling difficulties. Let believers, therefore, give their earnest attention to this object. That's John Calvin in the Institutes. The Reformers are just echoing the Church Fathers, who also speak on Jesus' words about the narrow door. St. Cyril of Alexandria writes around the turn of the 4th century, talking about striving to enter through the narrow door. He says, It means an unrestrained tendency towards carnal lust and shameful and, and pleasure-loving life. Is what we, that, that's where we, default, where we are by default. It's a luxurious feast, parties, banquets, unrestricted inclinations to everything that's condemned by the law and displeasing to God. A stubborn mind will not bow to the yoke of the law. This life is cursed and relaxed in all carelessness. Those who would enter in by the narrow door must withdraw from these things to be with Christ and to keep the feast with him. Do you see, that's a call to holiness. All Christians must live a lifestyle, friends, of repentance and seek holiness, not for the sake of their justification, but for the, for the sake of their sanctification, their holiness, their being in the image of Jesus. There's a reason that the Book of Common Prayer has you confess your sins how many times a day? If you do all the offices? Three. Three. Three times a day we confess our sins. Every day. Monday through Saturday. And then we come together and we do it on Sunday too. And then if you have persistent sins, you're supposed to come to a priest and confess to him so that he can help you get over that persistent sin. That is a lifestyle of repentance outlined for us by Jesus, the Church Fathers, and the Reformation. What trouble we're in when the Church herself doesn't listen and heed the words of Jesus to strive to enter the narrow door. What trouble we're in 
when the church says, ah, don't worry about it. God loves you. It's okay. Is that loving? No. Certainly not truthful. You see, salvation's costly to God. But it's worth it to God because He loves you. And so it must also be costly to you and I who follow Christ and be worth it to us because we love Him. Each of us has a fixed amount of time not just to repent and confess Jesus to be justified by His sacrifice on the cross, but also to lovingly and dutifully pick up our own cross and follow Him, laying aside, withdrawing from the things of this world so that we might see Him more clearly. Look, if you doubt my interpretation of this, look at St. Paul's in the epistle. He says it in a nutshell. Philippians chapter 3. Just look at verses 18 and 19. What does he say? For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But, he continues, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, And here's the promise, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If you read that and you feel a little bit uncomfortable but a little bit assured, that's good. It's a sign that the Holy Spirit's working in you. Listen to Him. Let Him continue to work in you and work on you and keep striving, friends. If you're overly comfortable and not challenged, St. Augustine of Hippo has a warning for you. Christ has hidden enemies, says St. Augustine. All those who live unjust and irreligious lives are Christ's enemies, even if they're signed with his name and called Christians. I mean the ones to whom he's going to say, I do not know you. Friends, do not be the ones to whom he says, I do not know you. The path of the cross is difficult. Let's continue it together. How are you doing? How's your discipline going? Are you using this time to its fullest? Chances are no. I mean, I can confess to you, I'm not. Although the Lord has helped me along with some illness this past week, which definitely helps to mortify the flesh, let me tell you. It's not voluntary, but it helps. We walk together, friends, And we walk, most importantly, with Jesus in this journey. Don't neglect this time. Don't neglect this time. One day the door will be shut, and the time will be over, and we'll be called to account. Let us rest fully justified in Jesus' sacrifice, because he loves us, and let us count the cost of following him and continue to walk. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.